Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast presented by Scree Gear. And uh, New Year's is behind us. We are firmly into the month of January. And the after sale, after Christmas sale promotion, I hope maybe that you took um, an opportunity to take advantage of that. If you didn't get some Scree that maybe you were hoping you might get for Christmas. Um, and now we're in January. And it, it it's uh, still, there's still a lot of opportunity for deer hunting but it is winding down, and uh, I know a lot of guys that are listening to this, big uh, bow hunters, are also turkey hunters, and with spring turkey season coming, Scree Summit Camouflage Pattern is one of the best spring turkey patterns that you will ever see. In uh, my humble opinion, um, I have done a ton of turkey hunting in that pattern. I've done a ton of media with it. It looks phenomenal in the spring woods, and Scree's got a number of different turkey bundles put together that will really outfit you from head to toe for this spring whether you're a turkey hunter that travels to numerous states across the country and so you experience a a variety of different weather or um just a real basic just a real basic turkey bundle just the necessities that you would need for turkey hunting here in louisiana um i if you don't have any scree yet and you've been thinking about it the summit pattern is as good as you'll get for a spring turkey pattern, and you all know exactly how important camouflage and uh, everything is with eyesight as it pertains to turkeys. And um, it also translates awesome for next early season 
when we get back around to bow season. So it'd be a great time to look into it. If, uh, if you're good for the rest of the year, but you've been thinking about getting some new turkey gear, check it out, follow them online, YouTube, social media, find out more about the gear and shop online. It's greegear.com. So, uh, it's middle of January, almost the middle of January. And, um, Levi and Colin join me on this episode. What's up guys? Say hello. What's going guys? Hello. So, uh, Levi and I continue to have a, uh, miserable deer season. And, um, I wouldn't say that. Well, I, Levi's, Levi's, um, kill stats are miserable, but, um, yeah. as well as mine, he's having a little bit more success in terms of, um, good hunts and opportunities than I've had, but we're all, we're all scratch as far as killing anything. <laughs> it's been kind of tough. And I, I just led off talking about, um, turkey season with, uh, with, with scree and turkey camo. And I saw a ton of turkeys this week. I, um, I hunted in Mississippi for the first time this year and, uh, Man, the turkey population looks really good. I haven't seen turkeys like that. And and I'm not talking about just saw turkeys like just randomly one time. Like there were turkeys. I saw turkeys on every hunt and I saw turkeys throughout the weekend all over our place and huge flocks of turkeys, like 25 and 30 of them at a time. Heard turkeys gobbling on Saturday morning. Uh so that's exciting, but I didn't really see much for deer. <laughs> I saw a few deer, but nothing like, I mean, I saw some deer, and I saw a little buck, a little spike, and a little bitty eight-point trying to chase a doe around a little bit. But it's uh, it's been a tough season, and, and going up to Mississippi was a kind of a break in um, the routine of all the hunting I've been trying to do, do something different. But my as far as deer hunting goes, my results didn't really change much. So uh, how's uh, how's it been for you guys since New Year? Go ahead, Levi. <laughs> um, mine's been you have a lot more to talk about than I do. Mine's actually been, I would say, other than killing a good buck, as we talked about on the last one, I lost one. Uh, I actually had a really good two weeks of hunting. Saw a lot of deer. Um, I got on the same buck, not not the one I shot. Uh, it was a different buck. Um, I had five encounters with him since the second week of December, and I had him inside 20 yards three different times uh, over the break and could not get a shot at him. It was He was behind the tree, too thick, blah, 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 excuses, 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 just never could get a shot at him, <laughs> so... Um, I had another deer, a totally separate deer, uh, come out chasing a doe at like 3 o'clock one afternoon, and uh, the doe came out and walked right exactly where I wanted her to walk, uh, about 20, 25 yards from my tree. Um, perfectly, wind was perfect, everything was good. I was like, all right, this is this is when it's happening, this deer is dying in 20 seconds i'm gonna kill him and uh he came out of this cutover and uh was 
kind of milling around on the edge of the cutover. Well, the the doe had kind of like walked through. It ate a couple acres and walked through. And uh, the buck kind of like had happened to turn around and was like, damn, where did the doe go? So he turned around and took off sprinting right through my little hole. I was at full draw waiting on him and sitting there trying to stop him three different times. And he never stopped. So, but other than that, I mean, I've, I've been seeing a lot of deer. I've passed some does up, obviously. Uh, but yeah, those, I, rem- I remember a those text two that you, deer. you said, I'm going to kill this deer this evening. <laughs> I remember that text. Well, I shouldn't open my mouth. Just say, you should know better than to make definitive statements like that. Yeah, I know. You're right. Well, yeah, I I don't I, yeah. I I have had the exact same you know. I mentioned previous podcast that the cold weather didn't do very good for me. That it seemed like everything just shut down, and I guess in the back of my mind I was thinking, when the weather kind of got back to normal for here, so to speak, that things would just kind of you know that the cold that it was just that, that cold weather just really kind of you know slowed the deer movement down and not that it was really high but i was from a camera perspective and from hunting i was seeing a few deer and it just you know when the cold came at christmas it shut down and it has not picked back up um or well let me say i mean there's been i haven't seen deer from the tree stand but cameras have have kind of Everything has moved more nocturnal than it was before the cold. And really the only consistent thing I have going on, which has gotten more consistent than before the cold, but still it's just does, like post-rut does, bunched back up, coming to a food. I got cameras on a bunch of food plots just kind of monitoring what's using those food plots. And I get regular daily pictures, mostly at night, some right at dark, some here and there in the morning of does but the bucks have just disappeared for the most part and uh and i don't i I don't know um i I don't know i don't know where to where to uh where to put my finger on 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 how to figure it out i'll say this i know yeah uh, glenn peterson was on the podcast with us an episode or two ago and I, I talked to him today and he he hunts pretty close to louisiana right right over in mississippi and they had he said two days of just unreal rut activity where it was just non-stop action he killed another nice buck and missed a bigger one um and so you know it's obviously a it's just kind of sporadic all over the place you know and I mean, he's not very far down the road but you know, what's happening here is not what's happening there and vice versa. So it's just it's that time of the year to me where if the weather is right, you can kind of see anything from completely dead to just crazy action all just kind of in a flurry is how it feels. Yeah, I don't – I uh, I've hunted – I hunted like five days in a row within the last week and saw two spikes and – five days of hunting and I'm completely lost. But at at the same time, 
whenever I was hunting, another guy was hunting, and one day he saw a little small uh, eight-point chasing a doe. And the next, very next day in the same spot, he saw seven does and zero bucks behind them. So I don't, I don't know if it's just kind of turning off and, you know, slowly. Uh, I don't really know what, what to think about that, but. It's, I was going to, you, you mentioned that in a text that we were, we were having, uh, and it, it seems like it wasn't that long ago, like more around Christmas, you, you know, you had some action between cameras and hunting and stuff yeah and when it got it when seems, it was cold seems to me like maybe you've you might be in a lockdown period maybe i i've been in those five days i've been like all over the place like different areas trying different areas my, my cameras have been dead i mean maybe that's what it is um but it's it's like reminded me of like when we were trying to film for the solace release it's like i can't even see a deer like, you know, it's been really bad it's it, this happens to me sometimes and i tell you something that's happened to me more years than i care to remember because it's 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 frustrating it's madly frustrating january is is in many ways my favorite time to hunt i like hunting post rut and late season um but a lot of times I, I find, like, I find myself experiencing these big lulls. And then oftentimes that last week of the season, it's just fire. And then it just, like, it just ends. You know, it's like I fight it all of January trying so hard. To, to just figure out where the deer are and what they're doing and have some kind of plan for potentially getting on a deer. And then all of a sudden, like the last week or the last weekend of the season, it's like there's this huge rash of, of, of activity, and I'm all over deer, and things are coming together, and then boom, the season ends. That's happened to me. I can't tell you how many times I've walked out of the woods on my last day of the season to hunt, whether it be the actual last day or the last day I could hunt right there at the end. And I had just finished a two or three day span of just being, you know, like Levi was just like, I'm going to kill him on the next hunt. Like I'm seeing deer. I'm seeing what I've been hunting for all year. And then it's over. That happens to me all the time. And as much as I like to hunt January, it, there's always these just huge lulls for me in January. Um, and I, like for me, uh, hopefully, for me, I think some of it, it it has to do with with hunting pressure. Some of it has to do with rut cycle. Some of it has to do with browse acorns, and and how the deer move. And like where I'm hunting at home, there's a lot of plantation pine, and food plot. All the food plots are in those pines. And the creek bottoms and the hardwoods that scattered around, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this kind of landscape. They're kind of void of a lot of, especially with the cold weather we got. It kind of burn up all the acorns and browse. I mean, what was left is soured or gone. And it's really hard to bow hunt in five- and six-year-old pines because it's just really hard. And they're pretty much nocturnal as far as coming out to the food plots because of hunting pressure. 
and I just feel like the deer are just changing. They don't have as much reason to be in those hardwoods. The, you know, the does are in the pines. The does are around the food plot. That's where all the food is. And so, uh, I mean, that's kind of what I feel like here in Louisiana. If you're looking to buy your very own hunting property, or maybe you got a piece of property that you're looking to sell, you need to contact our friend Slade Priest, the hunting land man, a licensed realtor with Southern States Realty and a land pro with Realtree United Country Hunting Properties. Slade's more than just a real estate agent. As the host of the Sportsman Channel television show, Trained Assassins, and Hunt United on the Realtree 365 app, as well as his new digital series, Hunting Land Man, on Waypoint TV, his life has always been centered around the outdoors and God's creation. With the ability to leverage years of experience, knowledge, and a unique perspective gained from working in the family's timber and wildlife business, Slade just understands the recreational land market, and he gets results. Nobody sells more in Mississippi and Louisiana. To search for your new hunting property, visit huntinglandmanms.com or contact Slade at 601-888-0094 for a free consultation. Like with you, Colin, your, your, your property that you're talking about is a whole lot more like my property in Mississippi and that there's a lot of hardwood around there and stuff like that. And I, And, like, I feel like there's just between kind of a post-rut cycle and just an immense amount of pressure for the last three months. The deer are just getting really hard, and you just really got to catch just the right weather change, weather pattern on top of that kind of combined with some late estrus does is really kind of the secret. And how to figure that out uh, is, man, I don't know. If you know that, bottle it up and package it and sell it, and you'll be a rich man. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to – it's funny, when you were talking, Levi, you said that doe was kind of coming through feeding on some of those acorns. And I'll – so, like, a week, kind of right around the new year, I was hunting in the woods, and there was acorns falling out of the tree, like, in the trees that I was sitting in. And then it's been so slow, and I, I'm trying to, like – figure out like what's going on and i didn't really think about the lockdown thing which but that's that's interesting um but i'm just wondering like what's y'all's thoughts i mean i know it's obviously like the whole acorn deal is obviously usually gone or done by now but i mean do you think that they're still like at my place at least they could just be like milling around in the woods on these acorns and not moving far or, or, or I don't, I mean, I don't know, but that thought did kind of run through my mind the other day when I was sitting there and acorns were dropping right next to me. I don't know. That's kind of like a million dollar question on how your property's laid out. Like I know <clears throat> going back to what you said with, when you saw those, when you were seeing like two spikes and that small eight point going around, uh, and Locke mentioned it that you, he kind of his opinion was you're probably maybe the deer were kind of in a lockdown phase and that's one thing that I've noticed on our place that you know you have a really really good week of rut activity or so week and a half maybe and then you start seeing all kinds of small bucks just up roaming around everywhere. Spikes, four points, all young deer. You don't see any mature deer. They're all 
roaming around just kind of in random places. You may see them when walking down some roads. Like, I I tend to think, and it's just my opinion, I think that the mature deer at that point are typically probably with a doe somewhere. Um, Yeah. And, you know, the best... And I do it during the rut every year. You just kind of, kind of keep tabs of, you know, where certain little doe groups might hang out. But I mean, the best thing you can do at this time of year, in my opinion, is you know bounce around to different areas where you know does hang out, and you just got to get lucky. You just got to be close yeah. to them, and hopefully, there's one that's that's hot at that point that you know. Yeah, that yeah. Once I mean, a mature the best... deer comes off a doe, and you know right. he's up roaming and looking. So, the best area, you know, we've had a couple, me and a couple other people hunting when I was hunting, and there's really only been one area that's that deer are even getting seen at, and like with the the little buck and the seven does, it's all like in one area, and I'm me and other we're hunting we're trying other spots on the complete other end of the property while people are on this side and and like one side is like pretty good i guess kind of i mean you're seeing some deer and the other side is just nothing completely dead and i you know i don't i mean Locke obviously knows the property but it's just or he's seen the property well it's just baffling to me uh, you know there's there's a common commonly discussed topic about acorns that you know they not every tree not every acorn that's falling and hitting the ground is really that attractive or palatable to a deer that you know there's you know not to say not to say that they uh won't eat them but they prefer an acorn at a certain point you know, and I would have to assume that even after that, that acorn is laid on the ground for a certain amount of time, it, uh, you know, the more it gets wet, the change in temperature and everything, it's like any other, any other food. So it could be that that area you're talking about on your camp has some, has some, some kind of natural food, you know, likely acorns that are for whatever reason, more desirable at this time of the year than the trees yeah. in the other other parts you know i don't i don't know how to yeah guess i don't know how to guess what all that is like what reasons all that would be but whether it's low ground high ground or sunlight based on age of the maturity of the timber in one area or what but I, yeah. I mean, that's deer. I, I know I've experienced it and I've heard a lot of podcasts and heard a lot of people that have really kind of paid attention to it throughout their, their lives that, you know, it, it's it, deer are kind of, they pick and choose on those acorns and they definitely prefer certain trees over the others. And that changes throughout the year as the trees, I guess, I guess the word ripe is applicable and it it also changes every year too just because 
they hit one tree real hard one year, next year, I mean, you're not guaranteed to for that to be a hot tree next year. So Yeah. Yeah, like, I was talking to my dad, um, and, you know, I'm hunting in the woods some, on food plots some, and on our food plots, we have feeders. And I wanted to talk to you specifically about this, Levi. Um, well, both of y'all, but, you know, at your place, or first off, is, is y'all's food plots, is it just rye or what? It, what is it? Wheat, oats, and clover is what we Wheat, oats, and clover, primarily. okay. Because mm-hmm. I was talking to him and I'm like, like, we're just like, we're not seeing any deer on these food plots and like, I've kind of made a mental note over the past like two seasons and it like the, I don't feel like our deer are using our food plots at all. Like, I just feel like they're coming out and eating at the feeder. So have you ever, have you ever put up a browsing closure? No. Do no, you know what I'm talking about? Or have you ever seen those? Like, uh, like in closing like, it? Well, no, not the not the feed pot itself, but if you go out there and take a tea post in your food pot or around if there's like a small tree out in your food pot or something and drive you can drive you a tea post out there and once you plant plant the food pot and take you some take you some field fence or some chicken wire, probably put two or three tea posts up and build you a small little enclosure maybe in three or four foot around where the deer can't like reach inside of it and eat the grass. And yeah. See how high it'll, that grows. It'll tell see you. It, see if it gets higher yeah. versus the other. Yeah. yeah you gotcha. compare it to, well, you to know, your browse level. I, yeah. I think it, it has a lot to do with the, the property itself and how much natural <clears throat> forage it has on it just because of geography or timber management or whatever. But, you know, a lot of these fall seed mixes and stuff you know some of that is for diversity and providing a lot of different things to the deer in way of nutrition but some of that is because you know you have a seven way six way five way all the way up to like a 10 way mix and a lot of that is because there's plants in there that become more attractive to the deer at different times of the year so you constantly have something growing in the plot from early season right. through late season that the deer are want to eat so I, I i'm not i don't know it well enough to, to to name what plants at what time and all that but you you have some things in there that sprout up real quick and they're the deer start eating them right there in october and they eat them through the first part of the fall and then you have other things in there that they don't really become as palatable and as sought after by the deer until late season and they don't, you know, they grow much slower. And that, that way your food plots remain sustainable for a longer period of time instead of just planting something that sprouts up and grows for a couple months and then they're done with it by Thanksgiving or December, you know, for the most right. part. So, yeah, I was what because of what I was telling them, I'm like, I'm like, dang, like we were at when we were at uh, up at your place, I'm like, we're going out on these evening hunts at, you know, one thirty two whatever. And there's already deer out there just eating and feeding around. And, and I was just kind of talking, I'm like, I, you know, you don't, 
we don't ever see that at, at, at our place. And I was like, and I just want to, I know, like you said, y'all don't really hunt much, but I mean, over the, over the food plots. And I was just wondering, like, you think that could have anything to do with it or, or what? And Possibly. Answer that. I have like one more thing I want to. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of it, but you got to remember too, when you were over there on our place, how wonderful the weather is and, you know, it was cold. It was pretty clear, I think, every day that we hunted. And those bluebird, cold, high-pressure afternoons are when you really see those deer out in those food plots. That's what I see. I'm not – I can't speak for everywhere in the country, but if it's, you know, say it's in the 40s or, you know, low 50s, my – perfect temperature is like you know high 20s low 30s in the mornings low 50s in the afternoons into the high 40s and if the sun's out zero clouds in the sky i guarantee you you go sit around those food plots and probably starting about 1 30 or 2 o'clock you'll start to see deer feeding out in them and they'll stay out there all afternoon why that is i have no clue but like right now, um, I guess the last few days I hunted, uh, we didn't see—I didn't see any deer in any food plots. It was hot. I mean, it was in the sixties, seventies, yeah. a little bit. Uh, on those overcast, warm, low-pressure days, I don't hardly ever see deer out in food plots, really browsing around eating. I just don't. And that's just strictly my observation i'm i'm probably dead wrong if you talk to half the people in the country about deer I, I, no i would that's just what i see i would agree with you because just over the course of a lifetime of hunting lots of different properties that have food plots i would agree that cold clear high pressure days you see more food plot activity than anything than any other type of condition. I mean, I, like I said, I, I'm just speaking from observed, like observed what I can recall from just years of, of hunting Louisiana and Mississippi and a lot of different styles of hunting where from a camp atmosphere with a lot of pressure to, uh, much more managed property that's got better habitat and everything. The deer, for whatever reason, they feed earlier and they feed on grass more in those conditions. In my opinion, my observe my from what I've observed. And I do you think? No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I I don't. I was know. just saying, Levi. Do you think that? So you y'all don't run feeders or anything y'all have feeders or anything like that do you think you're getting i mean i think you are you're getting like the most just natural like deer movement that you possibly can like they're just going where they want to go they're not going because of feeders throwing out corn i mean you think that has a big like you think you can kind of like figure them out easier without like if they're on that supernatural like 
float like flow pattern of them. I mean, I, I could see that because I mean, and this has probably been discussed before. I think Kyler even I heard him say this last year that you get the opportunity to watch deer be deer. They're not right. focused on some artificial food source that some guy goes. They like the deer obviously know that you know. All right, one thirty when that four wheeler cranks up at that camp. <laughs> Yeah. He's going to that food plot, so yeah, we're getting the hell out of here. But <laughs> hey, it's Brian Chamberlain with Movement Mortgage. We're happy to be back for our second year supporting Louisiana Bowhunter. Just want to let you know that we're here for all of your mortgage needs, whether it's a purchase, a refinance, a renovation loan, or to take equity out of your home. We're also an equal opportunity lender, so whether you shoot a crossbow, a compound bow, a fixed blade, or an expandable, we're here for all of your mortgage needs. You can reach us at 504-228-3780 or at chamberlainteam at movement.com. Movement Mortgage, NMLS number 39179, Brian Chamberlain, NMLS number 114586, licensed in Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Florida. You know, it's, I'm not going to say it's easier, but I guess, I guess if you, People, you know, if somebody wants to say that deer pattern the hunter, you kind of become yeah. unpatternable, I guess, if you're, you know, if you're not sitting there hunting over something like well, that. I think you the know, problem, I think I the, know. I think the problem that a lot of people end up having, I think this is probably very common, is they just, they don't have a wide variety, diversity in places they can go and change i mean maybe maybe they have the acreage to do it but like in my case i mean i have a little bit of diversity but i have 400 acres and i'm just lucky that on my 400 acres there just happens to be some swampy area that they couldn't cut otherwise it would be less and i I mean i've got some pretty big chunks but you can't i mean the only way you can hunt it is to either hunt on the road or hunt in the food plot because it's six seven year old pines it's you know there's i mean you there's you don't really have a choice but yep. to, to hunt those those places and you know if you hunt in a place where you've got some staggered timber management so you've got some thicker some older cuts some fresher thicker cuts you've got food plots you got right aways and maybe pipelines and you got uh, some different things you can move around and try different things to figure out what the deer are using to find food and kind of base their movement patterns off of maybe different landscape opportunities but when you're hunting a 200 acre lease and and 180 acres of it is a pine ticket and you got a couple food plots you don't really have anywhere else to hunt so you you know i don't i don't know i don't know what advice to give that person because other than find somewhere else to hunt <laughs> because that's a, yeah, once that's a good point once the deer get to the point where they've kind of patterned you they've smelled you and heard you around those food plots so often throughout the whole season you basically got to have a hot doe yeah you yeah. know yeah and in saying that you know on a smaller piece of property i, I would i would definitely take into consideration how small your property is on how how you want to hunt it because 
I've I've killed some pretty nice deer in Minden back behind my dad's house. Uh, since then, we've been some houses built back there, and pressure's gone way up. It's just not as lucrative as it used to be. But I mean, we were I was hunting a you know a twenty acre, uh, ten fifteen acre block of timber behind a pond. There's there's nothing there. It's it's a little thicket right behind the pond, but you know, I would greatly limit myself going in there to to like two or three times a year because mm-hmm. the smaller the property, the less it's going to sustain pressure that you're going to be able to put on it. Um, yeah, and and it depends on like what it is. Like Locke said, you know, it may be if you're hunting four hundred acres and Third quarters of it's, you know, six, seven-year-old pines I use for bedding, like, deer, deer like, I mean, that's obviously what just about everybody keys in on is a change in habitat or something to look. That's where just about everybody starts to look. Like, you got a pine thicket here, swampy area here, you're going to look, okay, well, if I see that, the first place I'm going to is going to be that change in habitat to go look for deer shine. Absolutely, hundred percent. So, yeah, yeah. We were uh, we were talking, and this is really what I was getting at, and wanted to hear y'all's thoughts. Is we were thinking about next year just completely doing away with all the feeders and putting more money into the food plots and trying to produce like a a better plot with like more diversity like you were talking about lock you know throughout the whole season and i just i just wanted to know what y'all's thoughts were on well, that. I, I i my thought is i don't I, I don't think i don't have a negative thought towards it but and, and I, I obviously have been on the property but i don't know it over the course of a season or anything but i think that food plots as a general rule are a disadvantageous place for a deer and they know it It, they're in the open right and for them to come out in the open regardless of what you provide them nutrition wise and all that they've got to feel comfortable to come out in the open in the daylight just period you know and so no matter what you do to your food plots on private land uh in a in a club setting or, or whatnot if those food plots are getting a lot of pressure both by hunting and traffic. It, in my opinion, you're going to struggle. The, the food plots may serve a vital purpose in providing, you know, providing nutrition for your holding capacity. But to, to successfully have deer on those food plots in the daylight, most of the time on days when you expect movement in the daylight – You've got to you've got to really manage the pressure, you know. I, and I think one of the reasons that you know you referenced Levi's place. I mean, one of the reasons that they see a lot of deer on food plots is that they don't hunt over them. You know, those deer for generations have been used to seeing people drive by at a distance, but they don't ever walk out in a food plot and smell somebody sitting right on the edge of that food plot or see some see another deer get shot off of that food plot. You know, they don't hunt them very much. So the deer, it's just like the deer that are in your backyard. I mean, I can give this example very well because my son hunts right off of my backyard in the woods. And 
there's deer in my backyard from time to time, and we don't mess with them. And if you walk out the door and there's a deer back there, they won't stay there forever. But they're comfortable coming out there, and they'll stand there and look at you, and they'll just kind of slowly make their way off if you stay if you stay out there for too long. But if you step off of the backyard into the woods and you walk up on a deer, it acts exactly how you would expect. It blows and runs off and tears the woods apart getting out of there. Because yeah, we yeah, anyway we used we actually used to hunt over food pots growing up. We uh, I rifle hunted. I guess I started bow hunting when I was 13. I haven't rifle hunted since, but when when we were growing up little, we we had we had some box stands out in food pots, but I don't know. It's been good lord. I I I can't tell you the last time on our main property that anybody has hunted over one of those with the rifle or bow for that matter, really. Uh Yeah. They like Locke said, I mean, you can, those, those food pots are kind of intertwined in the CRP field, and man, if you if you look and pay attention well enough, like driving up and down our roads, and I've probably told you all this before, but once the foliage gets off the trees and stuff, you can, if you really pay attention and look out through that CRP, you can find deer you can see deer just sitting out there just watching you. Like if you drive by, as long as you don't stop, they're they'll be they'll be thirty, forty yards over there, you know, behind a little briar thicket, just sitting there watching you, just laying down. Yeah. If you stop right most of the time they'll get up and Yeah. I mean, butt, but do you think I mean, do you think the feeder alone running from you know, September through January or February, that feeder alone is like adding pressure to your place just because they know mm. it's not natural? No, I don't know if I would say that, but, you know, if you're just say, how how big is y'all's place, Colin? You don't mind me at like, like acreage-wise? 350 acres. Okay. Well, let's say you've got 350 acres and then you've got three neighbors that got likewise comparable size tracks that they hunt and all right you don't don't, just say you don't hunt over food pots you got your feeder out there but say all three of your neighbors got feeders over food pots they rifle hunt they hunt them every day i can guarantee you that your deer on your 350 acres i can tell you almost with certainty that they absolutely venture off around on those adjoining properties and oh yeah no doubt they dang well know right if those things are hunted with any mine mine ain't gonna be they're not gonna look at mine any different than theirs exactly yeah exactly i i'm not sure you know i i think i think what happens in most most scenarios i say most scenarios a lot of scenarios with feeders is people they they set up a a deer stand in relation to a feeder and they basically just play a numbers game they hunt it enough until a deer makes a mistake and walks out there in the daylight but right you know the deer the deer is 
it's like anything else. There's an exception to every rule. So a big buck walks out there from time to time. You see a picture of somebody killed a deer, um, a big buck, and it followed a doe or it came out there in the daylight or whatever. But, you know, what is it doing all the rest of the time, you know, and, and how is it affecting deer movement and all that kind of stuff? And I, I, just, I think it's hard to say, but I, I, on the one hand, I don't, you know, I don't believe, subscribe to any kind of theory about deer having cognitive thought ability. They don't, they can't cognitively decipher things the way that we can as humans. And so with that in mind, I, 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 I there's only so much they can, there's only, there's only so many two and twos they can put together, you know, in the way that, in what they're capable of. But yeah. they obviously have some ability to decipher the difference between natural and unnatural food sources. And I think the feeder itself also becomes a hub of human activity from the camera that somebody's checking around that feeder, from the feeder itself being checked and filled up and battery changed or reprogrammed. And then, of course, the hunting uh, the hunting that's around it and the scent that's left all around it, and that's happening all year long. And so I do think that, like, all of those things thrown in the pot and mixed up together, those are pressure points on any piece of property, you know. So if you take that from another angle and say, let's just say you have a piece of property where you don't have a lot of acorns, you don't have a lot of food plot opportunity, and what you do is kind of limited in, you know, how big they are and what all you can really do with them. And and you put feeders out, and you don't hunt around them. You put them in areas where you don't disturb them. You just leave them there for the deer to eat from them. They, they, they're, they're not, you know, whatever they are. They're big enough. They're set up well enough that you don't have to visit them very often, and you just leave them there just to feed the deer and keep them around. How is that? In my mind, it it should create a very di- different atmosphere than the feeder that's sitting twenty to fifty yards from a, a ladder stand, and it's getting there's a human in that ladder stand two or three times a week at least throughout the entire season. You know. Yeah. Now, I could definitely see it both ways because if you got a little local group of deer on your property that the way Locke said if you put your feeder up in some secluded area that you absolutely don't ever go in I think eventually the deer do kind of I guess get used to it I mean I don't see why they wouldn't well just think about but like the things that are out in a in a a home area so to speak you know there's something out in your yard that's completely foreign to a deer but they walk across your yard day and night all the time they go out there and feed on the acorn trees in the back of the yard stuff like that nothing ever disturbs them nothing ever bothers them and so whatever's out in the yard with them they just become used to it they don't associate it with anything because there's never anything to associate it with you know and so i think that that is a real thing for however deer perceive the world 
I think that's a real thing. But at the same time, you can't discount the idea that if there is an association occur, uh, occurring with this unnatural thing, that they can't somehow figure that out and that can't somehow become a problem for you. Yeah. All right. I'm not in the way I explained it earlier. I'm not saying that the deer is going to walk out in your food plot and say, Oh, that's a big, that's a boss buck feeder right there. There's a human over there on the wood line. You know, I don't think they think of it like that, Yeah. but they just know think something. They, yeah. Enough to make them uncomfortable, I guess. Well, I think, yeah. I think, I think, kind of part of where we're at right now in this conversation you know stemmed from from food plots and i guess it to kind of tie that up with kind of what you were talking about and, and asking colin is i don't necessarily think it's the feeder that it's not just the feeder but let's just say let's just say it this way if you took all the feeders off your property and you improved the food plots with better more diverse seed better fertilizing and the food plots were just better and there were no feeders on them but the hunting the hunting activity didn't change you were still driving through those food plots going from a to b you're still hunting over them you know a lot throughout the season i don't think the feeder makes that much difference the getting deer to come out in food plots in the daylight is about the human presence and the feeder is just one of the catalysts for human presence i guess is is the way to put it so, and, and, and to Levi's point, if all of your neighbors have food plots and they've got stands on them and that's all they hunt, then the deer don't know the difference between yours and theirs. And so you're kind of fighting an uphill battle with that. Yeah. But I also think that I've seen this as a kid. I can remember as a kid, I grew up hunting in a humongous deer lease in Mississippi, like huge 30 something members and thousands and thousands of acres. Like back when there were really, really big hunting clubs. And we probably had something like 40 food plots scattered throughout this place. Now, I want to say our lease was like twelve or 13,000 acres. Literally, it was ginormous. And you could literally, there were food plots that never got, it, never got hunted just simply because we had so many of them. And you could go to a food plot that hadn't been hunted all year, and there'd be deer out there at 3.30 in the afternoon. And then some of yeah. your more common, more popular food plots that people hunted all the time, they would start to dry up middle of the season. And so I think there's something to that too. I mean, I I think when it comes to food plots, like the amount of human activity that the deer encounter is just going to be, have a direct relationship to how comfortable they are coming out in the open in the daylight. Because regardless of what we know or what we can decipher about how they're able to perceive the world and, and how they're able to, you know, their thought processes and stuff like that, I don't think there's any doubt that we can all we all know that a deer knows good and damn well when he's out in the wide open. You know? Yeah. And they are absolute masters at sensing pressure yeah. and smelling and they know where they're safe. It is yeah. well it's, it amazes me every year that they are just that keen on their environment. The best analogy I've I've that I think I've ever heard and I've, I've probably used it in conversation multiple times because it just makes the most sense to me, even though I can't really define it exactly. It makes the most sense to me. 
and and that is you know someone explained you go in and out of your house every day you know you live in your house you watch tv in your living room you sleep in your bedroom you you feed your family in your kitchen and you're in and out of your house every day and if you came home from work one day and there was a stranger hiding in your living room and you walked in you could feel it something's different in that house it's just how you you know sometimes you walk in a room and you can tell something's not right before you realize what's out of place because you're there all the time that's your world and you know it better than you even realize you know it and you you know you walk into your bedroom and before you even identify what your wife has changed you know something's not right and you have to look for it to figure it out but you know it as soon as you walk in there something's different and i think that yeah. in that same way deer are kind of that way if they they approach an oak flat that they feed in on a day-to-day basis. They walk through that oak flat all the time. They know it. They smell it. They see it all the time. And then one day they walk in there and there's a dude sitting up in a tree at 18 feet. They may not see him, but they can sense something. I don't know how that works. I think it's for all beings, not just deer, but human have that kind of perception. Probably not as honed as a deer because a deer's, you know, every day under a threat of survival. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, they spend 80% of their life trying to stay alive scared and running you know it's kind of yeah it's it's the same it's the same concept that you you hear from people when someone becomes blind or deaf or they lose one of their senses their other senses heighten yeah you know um and i think the food plots or anything else is that they're just they're 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 so keen that they just they have that sixth sense about them you know and they know when something's not right and I think that's when they're just really, really comfortable with food plots where the pressure's just managed well, they will use them in the daylight. And I think that has more to do with it than the feeder. Yep. Long drawn out. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not completely correct response. Uh, our, all of our points are absolutely not correct, I'm sure. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's fun to talk about anyways. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess one more thing I wanted to ask y'all was, like, how many, whether it be deer or pigs, like, so all three of us shoot mechanical broadheads. How many animals are you shooting through before you just, like, switch to, not like a different, like, brand, but just, like, get, switch to, a like, a sharper one that hasn't been shot through animals are you sharpening or how how many is it what do you think oh if i if i shoot a deer with a broadhead i'm swapping blades out every time oh just one animal immediately Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i always swap out now um i've 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 got severs on my airs this year, and I've shot shot them before. They're 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 good broadheads. I I really like the the fact that you can put the little screw in there and actually practice with the broadhead that retains the blades. Um, yeah. I've shot Rage for years. I shot Grim Reapers. I like the Grim Reapers too. Um, the Rages. Um, I actually bought a. For anybody that cares, I bought a little tool that I saw on the internet. It works kind of like a Lansky sharpener. Do y'all know what a Lansky knife sharpener is? Yep, I have one. Okay, well, there's a there's a tool on the internet that 
It's it looks it works similar to a Lansky sharpener. It's a little wedge that you can take a rage broadhead, take the blade off, and it holds it in there, and you can huh. rub them on a stone and sharpen them really easily with it. So my take my take has always been if I if and honestly for a very short I mean I've been shooting nothing but Grim Reapers since like 2007 so. I'm not the best the best uh to to comment from that perspective because you know it's kind of been the same thing for 15 years now but um before that I've shot a few um like a G5 Montec or a Land Shark or something that wasn't replaceable blade and one of the things I hated about it was I'm not great at sharpening things and I never I just don't never, I never know when to say enough is enough. I, I just, I don't know. I'm just not good at that. And so I've kind of always, even before I started shooting Reapers, I've always tried to shoot a replaceable blade broadhead. And my take on it was, I, you know, in the grand scheme of things, just replace the blades. And then obviously, I'm going to shoot a broadhead as far as, the broadhead itself, and unless it gets damaged, unless I can, you know, spin it or visibly see something wrong, any any little any nick or or damage to it, I'm not going to shoot it again. But if it, if there's no damage to the broadhead, I'm just going to replace the blades. And I I just don't try to replace like sharpen. I mean, on all these um, replaceable blade style broadheads, I'm just not going through the the trouble to say to to me i i shoot on a good year i'll shoot four or five deer you know and from a financial perspective and from everything just it it just makes the most sense to me to just replace the blades that they're not expensive enough for me to lose sleep over trying to figure out how to sharpen a little bitty broadhead blade now i would agree with that it's it takes a Rage, Grim Reaper, any of them, Sever, whatever replacement blade you want to talk about. It takes 15 seconds to take the little Allen head out and put some new blades in, and you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. It, it's you don't you're not spending 15, 20 minutes resharpening your broadheads. Or my dad, he actually. He still shoots feathers with Zawicki broadheads. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. But if he gets rained on or kills a few deer with them, he's in there refletching at night in the camp. You know, I shoot veins. I get a pass through, wipe the air. I really don't even have to wipe the blood off the air. Pop the blades off 15 seconds, and I'm that air is ready to go. Again, I, I, so. I, I, I think. At some point, I had a conversation about this either on a podcast or somewhere, somewhere at some point, and I just kind of laid it out from the perspective of the amount of time and effort that we all go through to find ourselves in the situation to get a chance to execute a, a kill shot on a deer. When you consider you know you you I mean you owe it to yourself it's simple when you do all of that work and you spend all that time and money 
to get to that place in time where you have a legit opportunity to make a lethal shot on an animal, why cut corners and try to convince yourself that you can sharpen an already shot little bitty disposable thin piece of metal when you can just spend 20 bucks and replace them? In, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And and to be quite honest with you, like, not everybody is going to agree with this, but to be quite honest with you, given the marketplace, why would you shoot something that, you ha- that was that labor-intensive when there's so many better options, in my mind, that are just eliminate any possibility for equipment malfunction or error whether it be from sharpness or from you dinging a blade trying to sharpen in it or you you know doing anything in that fashion why wouldn't you just shoot something that you can put brand new now the argument can be made that oh i can sharpen it sharpener than it more sharp than it comes from the factory and if that's the case and you really feel that these things aren't sharp enough to kill a deer out of the package then you know, to each his own, but I, I've yeah. I've never I've never shot a deer <laughs> and thought that oh that broadhead wasn't sharp enough to kill that deer <laughs> ever straight out of the package yeah. and I have that's I I, I and I, I get I get worked up when somebody wants to blame their broadhead now if you if you shoot a two and a half inch mechanical and shoot him in the shoulder at 50 yards yeah you're probably not going to get penetration but it's not the broadhead's fault that you shot him in the shoulder i i get worked up when i read it on the internet or hear somebody say that it was the broadhead's fault you uh, did not hit the deer in the right spot do not that Don't whole, even go there. That drives me insane. That whole sharpening, like, like you buy new broadheads and then you sharpen them to make them sharper. That's like a thing with these uh, fixed blades now. Like they, I just they don't, don't understand. They, don't, they air quote don't come sharp enough. I just don't understand. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, I mean, it's like That's you're trying to make something out of nothing. In my mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're you you are just intentionally trying to make life difficult on yourself. For what? To prove a point to somebody that you can sharpen better than the factory? Because like yeah. Levi said, if you make a good if now, don't get me wrong, there's gonna stop that uh there's that, that there's, there's something to be said for somebody who doesn't have their gear set up correctly. Right? Okay, so you're shooting an arrow and a broadhead in a bow that's not tuned that, that that doesn't it's not all and so you know your accuracy and your execution with the bow is is iffy and you know I don't know maybe there's something in there where the broadhead doesn't perform because it's on an arrow that's not really set up well for the bow and the bow's not really all that kind of stuff but we're not talking about that we're talking about the bow is set up you've shot the bow you're shooting the right size, the right weight, the right spined arrow. You're shooting the right weight broadhead. Everything is good. And just for some reason, at nearly 300 feet per second, 
that broadhead just wasn't sharp enough to cut through soft tissue. But magically, it just wasn't. Yeah. So, well, at that angle, the arrow, well, you shouldn't have shot at that freaking angle then. <laughs> like, you know, like there's something to that. I just, I, it, it, especially as we sit here in 2023 with the performance of the, of the equipment that we have, it's just hard to imagine, even if the blades are not as sharp as your grandpa can get them on his old whetstone, if you shoot a freaking deer at 25 yards broadside through the vitals, you can shoot a damn butter knife at him and it's going to cut his ass wide open. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's just, uh, it just seems like an unnecessary amount of labor. And it also seems like a, a kind of a, a pain pinch point for you to cause a problem that didn't exist by f- fooling with your equipment unnecessarily is, is kind of how I look at that. So, with that, with all that being said, we're going to wrap up the episode with, with one last thing here. We're talking about equipment. I'm leaving tomorrow to go to the ATA show. So I'll be at the ATA show, and if y'all aren't familiar, ATA is the Archery Trade Association, and it's the uh, their yearly like show and convention. And basically, this is not like your Louisiana Sportsman Outdoor Expo where all the you know you can go buy all this stuff and all these vendors. It's it's more of a business to business type show. It's basically where stores go to meet with manufacturers and write inventory orders for the year and see all the new products that are coming out and decide what they want to put on their store shelves. So when you go to the ATA show every year, there's a lot of cool things that happen at the ATA because a lot of the uh, a lot of the companies kind of debut their newest products and everything from accessories to arrows and broadheads and, and bows themselves and camo and cameras and everything so um i just wanted to kind of ask each one of you i guess i'm uh, i don't know what my schedule is going to be like but are there things that you've seen that that are supposed to be being debuted at the ata that you want me to look at or that you're interested in in seeing something new that that you've seen coming out on the market uh actually yeah i do have one thing usually they don't even sometimes they'll kind of hint and tease at, at something new being released, but usually they don't just show it until the show. But XOP has what looks like done a little bit of a rebrand and they actually posted a video yesterday. Um, and there's clips of new, everything's new for XOP this year from the, from what I can tell. So, um, they have some sticks that look exactly like some other <laughs> sticks on the market right now. Um, but yeah, I would, I'm curious if you would go, if you have time, go check out the XOP booth and see the new stands. And in the video, I've seen like two new stands, a new saddle platform, two new sets of sticks. It all is completely different. None of it looks the same as what you have and have used and everything so hmm. well it's That's not on their website i'm curious it's not on their website a lot of these companies will start like here leading up the week you know week before and stuff like that they'll start releasing some stuff to just sort of build up anticipation and get more more traffic to their booth yeah or uh for yeah the for show. anybody who is listening and they are curious this is on xop's uh youtube channel so it's called. I think. I think the video, like their new slogan, is called like "Change is Good," 
Um, so it's like a three minute video on their YouTube. You can go watch it and see the sneak peeks. And then over the next couple of days, I'm sure videos will be released and whatnot. So that's it for me. That. I'm, that's I'm, one of the things. I'm I'm going to check that out because I'm at a constant, I'm constantly in, um, oh, y'all know, I'm constantly battling gear with, mode. Gear, with, with trying to swap and change and do this and do that and and i've yet to get my gear set up narrowed down exactly every time i get something right then i i, I change something, Gotta buy something else. <laughs> eventually yeah. i will say this over yeah. the last well since the week before christmas i've hunted out of my saddle more than i have um end of last year or any leading up to this year i've actually saddle hunted quite a bit and so uh, that's been new. I haven't shot at anything. But I've had a couple of opportunities where I had to pick my bow up and kind of – I had a I had a, a doe coming Saturday afternoon, and I could tell there was a buck following her. Unfortunately, it was a spike. So, you know, when it finally showed up, it was just a spike. And But I still – I'm still – I'm still in wait-and-see mode because I was sitting there kind of – Got myself in position. The deer was going to be on my strong side, like I hoped, and everything. But I was still thinking, man, this is fixing to be a goat roping when I try to draw this bow back and shoot. <laughs> I was sitting there balancing on that freaking platform, leaning to one side. I had my bow and I was ready, and I was like, this doe standing there, and she's, she, I mean, she was fixing to bring him right by me. And if it had been a deer I was going to shoot, I was thinking. I guess, I guess mostly what I was thinking was, well, here we go. <laughs> I hope this goes well. <laughs> the deer's like coming in and you're like, you're like watching the deer and then you like, you glance at your bridge and you look at the deer and then you glance at your platform trying to like figure out like, I'm trying, what do yeah. I do now? <laughs> well, I had another situation on the same hunt where I had, I was kind of on the side of a hill and I, and it was a real thick area about 40 yards along the side of the hill down from me. And I kind of caught a glimpse of a deer, and I, so I knew a deer was coming through that, and I had no idea what it was. It ended up being a doe, but I had no idea what it was, but the way the situation was, I don't know how to really lay this out that well, but I basically had a short window of time where the deer was coming downhill through this thicket, and it was going to pop out in an opening at the base of the hill, and I had about maybe 10 or 15 yard wide opening where when it popped out at the base of the hill, I had just that width of an area to get a shot. And it was going to be like a 25 yard broadside shot. But if it hit the bottom of the hill and kept walking, I mean, it it was going to walk right through that opening quickly, potentially. And it was on my weak side. And so I saw the deer, I heard the deer first, and then I saw, and I saw it moving through there, and I knew it was fixing to pop out. And I had to try to rotate around to my weak side. And I'm just here to tell y'all right now, it could have been a 200-inch world-class state record buck, and I could not have shot it because I could not get myself in a situation. I mean, it was directly to my weak side. And I just, I I might could have made an effort, but it would have been, it would have been. Well, you would have had to do like what that guy did in that picture. Yeah. Yeah. Turn upside, <laughs> turn upside do. down, like, like Spider Man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but I've gotten really good at the at getting up and down the tree. I've at least gotten that far. So, anyway, all right. Well, 
Um, I guess uh, if there's there's no other gear that y'all want to mention, I, I'll try to report back on all the cool stuff that I see. I, I'm going to shoot. I'll definitely make time to go shoot a bunch of the new bows and see if there's anything there that surprises me or 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 whatnot. But uh, it, it'll be cool. It's always a cool uh, show to be able to go to and just uh i mean i really have noticed over the last couple of years there's kind of a plateau in technology you know there's some some new stuff but a lot of it is just very minor tweaks to some of the same innovation but so i've gotten a little bit callous over the years because there hasn't been a whole lot of just really groundbreaking new innovation to hit the market but i'll be curious to see and i'll uh i'll definitely give a report back on, on what cool stuff I see. And uh, I fully suspect that while I'm gone, that'll be January the 10th through the 14th. So I would expect that the weather is going to be good and the deer hunting is going to be phenomenal while I'm gone. So y'all go ahead and get prepared for that. Y'all should probably plan <laughs> to hunt over the next three or four days because I suspect that it's going to be lights out while I'm off and un- unavailable to hunt. But... um. The last thing that we're going to do is we do need to uh, we need to announce the the winner of our December giveaway. That uh, that is uh, uh, it, just to remind you what we do is every order placed on our website throughout the month we do a drawing the first of the ne- of the following month for uh, a gear package from every order placed. So even if you place more than more than one order in the month, you get in the drawing more than once, and and this. December's drawing is a, a Moultrie cellular trail camera and a Louisiana bow hunter hat and t-shirt. And the winner is Richard Davis from Doosan, Louisiana. Am I saying that right? Doosan? Doosan? D-U-S-O-N? Doosan? I would think. I guess. I sent, if you're listening, I sent you an email earlier. Um, as well as my, we posted on the story and everything. So. Yeah, so be looking for that, uh, Richard, if you, if you happen to listen to this. And... We'll do we'll do one more gear giveaway this year for the month of January. So um, we've got to decide what that gear package is going to be, but we'll make that announcement soon. Every order placed during the month of January on our website will be entered in that drawing the first part of February, and we'll make that announcement. So until then, hopefully there's some post-rut, post-season or late-season post-rut action happening around the state this week and going into this weekend. Hope everybody's able to get out and and uh take part in that and kind of have a good getting towards the end of the season but uh remind you about the film contest Thank you. you're welcome what was that <laughs> what was that, what was that? <laughs> that had to be levi anyway uh remind you about the film contest we'll be uh starting to take entries into the film contest in february so uh be looking for that information coming soon and uh we really appreciate you listening and we'll talk to you next week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the louisiana bow hunter podcast if you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com and if you want to help support louisiana bow hunter go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise if you don't have any at your local shop let us know and we'll reach out to them or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day see you next week Thank you.